Good morning to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're looking on one of our pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 823. And I'm going to begin to read here in just a moment in verse 15. Well, all you need is love. So say the Beatles. Love, 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 love. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love, love is all you need. It's pretty profound, isn't it? Quite deep. And I think perhaps this would be the mantra of our world today, would it not? Our world is obsessed with the idea of love, whether it be romantic love or it be self-love. I think that we possibly would all agree that love is seen as ultimate. It's seen as, as the end all. In fact, it's the, it's the trump card. Oftentimes, you'll hear phrases like, but they just love each other. As if anything done in the name of love, it just sort of gets a free pass. Or, or that, that doesn't feel very loving to me. And therefore, if it doesn't feel like love, then it isn't love. And it's wrong. Sadly, this way of thinking has even found its way into the church. How many times have you heard before, God loves you unconditionally and accepts you just the way that you are? Friends, if I can be upfront and honest with you this morning, but perhaps there are some in the room this morning who will hear my words this morning, you will You will listen to this sermon, you will read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, and you may see them as unloving. Because when we talk about words like accountability, we talk about words like discipline, we talk about words like excommunication, those don't sound like loving words, do they? In fact, perhaps for most or for many, it might sound quite unloving. And yet what we discover this morning in Matthew chapter 18 is that this idea of accountability and discipline is actually quite important to our life together in the church. It's, it's actually vital to our health as a church. This morning we continue our series together on biblical community, on what life together in the local church is supposed to look like. And we come this morning to the topic of church discipline. And I realize that for some, even even that phrase, church discipline, it sounds quite harsh. Maybe it sends chills down your back because either you've bought into the false notion of what love is, that love is simply tolerant. Or you've been in a church where you've seen this handled very poorly. Or you've never actually even seen it at all. And so this is a particularly sensitive topic. It can be quite a confusing topic. It can even be a downright politically incorrect topic, can it? Because after all, what Jesus is going to call his followers to here in Matthew chapter 18, it goes completely against the grain of the world's way of thinking, doesn't it? Because the world really only has two categories. Here they are. Either you unconditionally affirm everything that I do, or you are my mortal enemy. And the world sees this as offensive. 
to say that any particular choice or lifestyle is wrong, it's seen as unloving, it's seen as judgmental. Who are you to tell me what is wrong? And sadly, we've even convinced ourselves in the church that it is somehow loving and kind to sit back and say, your sin is your problem. That's, that's, between, that's between you and God. Ch- church discipline, that sounds too legalistic. That's something that's only going to cause problems in our relationship and, and in the church. And so I'm just not going to say anything at all. Or it's really not that big of a deal. I'm not, I'm not going to judge you because that's seen as harsh and it's seen as unloving. And yet, yet, brothers and sisters, we discovered this morning that church discipline is actually one of the greatest ways in which we express our love toward one another in the church. And it is a necessary aspect of our church life together. Let's see what Jesus has to say from Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. As is our custom, if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Church, this is the word of God. You can be seated this morning. Well, the context of Matthew chapter 18 is one of discipleship. Jesus is talking to his disciples here on what it means to follow him, what it means to be his disciple. And as we've seen even in our study of Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel is actually divided much the same way, with Matthew chapter 16 serving as sort of the turning point of the gospel where we have Peter's confession. If you notice back in chapter 16, verse 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. And then in verse 18 of chapter 16, Jesus says, notice, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, It is upon this confession that Jesus promises to build his church, this this new community of people that he is creating. And so then in what follows, we see now what it looks like to be Jesus' disciples. We see what it looks like to be part of this new community, to be his church. And so in chapter 18, notice we see that being Jesus' disciple, being part of his church, it means, chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, humility, 
serving one another. Verses 5 and 6, we see it means receiving and caring for one another. Verses 7 to 9, we see it means fighting against sin and temptation. Verses 10 to 14, it means we seek after the lost. Then in verse 21, down there, notice it means that we forgive one another as we ourselves have been forgiven. But, but right there in the middle, we see that being Jesus' disciple, being part of his church, it means we discipline. Discipline is actually an important part of discipleship. Discipline is actually an important and yet often neglected aspect of life together in the church. In fact, you, you might even say it's at the top of the list. Now, why would I say that? Well, note, note that only, only two times, only two times in any of the four Gospels does Jesus ever use the word church. Ecclesia, this means the assembly, the, the gathered body. And both are used here in Matthew. Notice back in chapter 18, or excuse me, 16, as I read a moment ago, in verse 18, where Jesus says he will build his church on Peter's confession. And then in our text this morning, in chapter 18, notice verse 17, how the church is to discipline. So, So next to the importance of the church's confession of Christ are the instructions to the church on accountability and discipline. Brothers and sisters, this is not a secondary issue. This is a top-of-the-list issue, which means that if if this is an important aspect of the church life, if, if this important aspect of discipline isn't central to the life of the church, then we aren't being a biblical church. We aren't a healthy church. We aren't the kind of church that Jesus calls us to be. And so then, what is church discipline? How is it to be done? Why should we do it? Or or what's at stake if we don't? Well, those are the questions I want to answer. Let's answer these three questions in turn. First, what is church discipline? What is church discipline? I just want you to see three principles here. I'm going to give you three principles. Principle number one. First, I think it's important that we establish that all of us are in need of discipline. All of us need discipline because all of us sin in various ways. All of us need correction because none of us have arrived. We all have blind spots, don't we? We all have areas of our lives where we are blinded to our own sin and we don't see ourselves as clearly as perhaps other people around us see us. We are all in need of discipline. Not to mention we are all prone to wander, aren't we? As we just sang a moment ago, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. My friend, listen to me. We are all prone to wander, and to wander is dangerous, and it is deadly. And thus, we all need discipline. And therefore, church discipline is actually a gracious and loving gift from God, Church discipline is actually a loving thing that we are called to do for one another in the church, as the church, as 
as brothers and sisters in the family of God. In fact, in fact, you could say that discipline is foundational to our relationship with God. As I read just a moment ago in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, where the writer of Hebrews says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then in verse 7, he goes on to say that for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God's love for us is seen in his discipline of us. That just as any loving father would discipline their child, so our heavenly father, God, disciplines his children. Parents, there is a reason that we discipline our children. It's because we love them. If you don't discipline your children, you don't love them. There's a reason we teach them not to run with scissors or start fires in the basement or run into the streets, or to behave in certain ways. It's because by disciplining them, we are saying, my child, I love you enough to say that what you are doing is not good for you. And our Heavenly Father, He has not left us alone in our sin. And thus God has given us the church. He's given us one another as agents and agents instruments of discipline and correction and training in each other's lives because we all need it. In fact, we see here in Matthew chapter 18, principle number two, that Jesus has actually entrusted and assigned the local church with the authority to discipline. He's given the local church the authority to discipline. Notice down there in verses 18 to 20, we have several promises from Jesus about the church's authority to discipline. Notice verse 18, truly I say to you. So in other words, these are promises from Jesus. What has he promised? Here's what he's promised. Jesus promises that when the church enacts discipline, they do so in his own authority. That when a church practices biblical church discipline, they do so in the authority of Christ himself. Notice there in verse 18 what Jesus says. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So notice that Jesus promises here the local church with the authority of binding and loosing. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, we could go outside the Bible to try to figure out what that means, and some scholars do. They say it's some sort of ancient rabbinical practice. However, I think a better way to understand these words, binding and loosing, there in verse 18, is in the context of Matthew. Is there any other place in the context of Matthew where that phrase, binding and loosing, appears? And the answer is yes. Back up to chapter 16. Immediately after Peter's confession in verse 16, and Jesus' promise to build his church based on that confession, verse 18, notice what Jesus says in verse 19. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Now, it's safe to say that there is much debate, especially among Protestants and Catholics, on what this keys to the kingdom are and who has them. But just note here that these keys that Jesus is describing have to do with binding and loosing. In other words, to possess the keys is to be able to bind and to loose. And notice the two realms Jesus describes. To bind on earth is to bind in heaven. And to loose on earth is to loose in heaven. If you do it on earth, it's going to be done in heaven. So then what are these keys binding and loosing? Well, think about the metaphor with me for a moment. What what do keys do? Keys open and close things, don't they? They, They let people in. They keep people out. Saw this just a few nights ago at our church picnic. I couldn't find the keys to my car. I couldn't get in. Keys bind. They shut the door and they they loose. They open the door. And thus, Jesus is saying that the local church has been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom, the authority of Christ himself, and these keys now have the authority to open the door of the kingdom and close the door of the kingdom. To say that a person is in the kingdom of heaven or to say a person is not in the kingdom of heaven. The church has the authority to say a person's confession of Christ is real or it's not. In other words, the local church has been entrusted with Christ's own authority for declaring who is a kingdom citizen and who is not a kingdom citizen. Now notice very carefully there that I didn't say the church has the authority to make someone a kingdom citizen. What I said, however, is that it does have the authority from Christ to declare who does and who does not belong to the kingdom, who is a Christian and who is not a Christian, the authority to bind someone or to lose someone. Jesus promises that when the church enacts discipline, they do so in his own authority. And you see that in the next two promises as well in Matthew 18. Look there again, verses 19 and 20. Two of the most misused and abused verses in the Bible. I mean, are there any two verses in Scripture that are more taken out of context than these two? Here's what I mean. Notice in verse 19. Verse 19 is not a promise that if you just get another Christian to pray with you about something, God's going to give it to you. I want a new car, brother. Agree with me. Poof, right? No. Context is key. Verse 19, Jesus says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth, and the earth here meaning where the church is, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven on earth, Two of you you agree on anything anything on earth about anything and ask, and the asking refers to to binding and loosing, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Jesus is talking here about church discipline. He means that when two of you confront someone in sin, God the Father is acting with you. You are in fact acting in the authority of God himself. Or verse 20, notice, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You've heard this one before, right? Attendance sure was low today. 
but two or three of us were there, so Jesus was there with us. Two or three are gathered. Implying that if I'm by myself, Jesus isn't there. No. Again, the context is church discipline. Jesus is saying, he is saying, when you carry out this process of church discipline, In verses 15 to 17, when two or three of you confront a brother or sister and you agree, you can be assured that my authoritative presence is with you in a very powerful way. What is bound on earth will be bound in heaven and what is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus promises that when the church enacts discipline, they do it in his own authority. But there's one more important principle in defining church membership I want you to see before we jump into here the how-to of church discipline. Principle number three. Really, there are two kinds of church discipline, two forms, and both are important, both are necessary. Here they are. Formative church discipline and corrective church discipline. First is formative church discipline. This has to do with teaching and instructing when, when we are being formed into Christ-likeness, being instructed in how to live holy, godly lives. And thus, formative discipline should actually be happening every time we gather. We, we are to be continually encouraging one another to, to turn from sin and, and to follow after Christ And so formative discipline should actually be an ongoing reality in the Christian life and in our relationships with one another in the church. This happens every week as we gather, as we hear the word preached and we hear the word taught and we are are being then led to repent of sin and to follow after Christ. And when that happens, we're experiencing formative church discipline. And by the way, this is what should regularly be happening in a healthy small group as well, where we are encouraging and reminding and exhorting and rebuking and teaching one another as we discuss and apply God's word to our lives. And, and, And the amazing thing is that God uses this kind of regular, ongoing discipline in our lives, praise God, to prevent the sin in our lives that would lead to the second kind of discipline. And the second kind of discipline is what we would call corrective church discipline. That there are times in each of our lives when you and I need more specific, more direct forms of correction. We must correct one another when we are in sin. When we see one another living in unrepentant sin. And someone lovingly confronts us in our sin and calls us to repentance. Calls us to holiness. Calls us back to God. And that's the kind of discipline that Jesus describes here in Matthew chapter 18. Which leads to the second question. How then should we practice church discipline? How should we practice it? Well, in verses 15 to 17, notice we see Jesus' four-step process of church discipline. And I'm actually going to add a fifth later. But, but just notice here these four steps in verses 15 to 17. However, 
Before we jump in here, let me just, let me just say a couple of things. First, verses 15 to 17, they would actually be the, the how-to of what we saw in principle back in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if you remember a few weeks ago, where Paul said, brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. So you might even call this then restorative church discipline, because brothers and sisters, that's the aim here. That's the goal. The, the goal is restoration. The goal is repentance. It's very important. But second, let me just say that we must be, I think, extremely careful not to take these four steps in any kind of rigid, wooden, check-off-the-box, legalistic kind of way. Here's what I mean. When should someone move from step two, take two or three with you, as we'll see in a moment, to step three, tell it to the church? How many attempts have been made? How much time has lapsed? Or step three and four. Is it depending on the public nature of the sin? Is it depending on the habitual nature of it, seriousness of it. So, so listen, the kind of corrective discipline that Jesus is calling us to practice here, brothers and sisters, listen to me, it, it requires wisdom, it requires patience, it requires love, it requires gentleness, it requires pastoral care. So notice the steps here. Feel the weight of this, please. Step number one, we might call it the private conversation. The private conversation. Look there, verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So, notice that the context here, it seems to be one of personal offense. Because notice there, verse 15, Jesus says it's against you. But, but note here that there's actually some discrepancy with that phrase. In fact, perhaps some of your Bibles have a small footnote there. Does your Bible have a footnote there saying, maybe at the bottom of the page, that some manuscripts don't contain these words against you? Meaning that some of the earliest and best New Testament manuscripts do contain the phrase against you, and some of them don't. So, what I mean is, I don't think we should limit this command in verse 15 only to personal offenses. When someone sins against me. In other words, whether it's against you or not, the sin should still be confronted. Not to mention, as I said a moment ago in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you should restore him. So, so I think we could extend this more broadly to include any time... We see a brother or sister caught in sin. And remember we said caught means living in habitual, unrepentant sin. It's a pattern in their lives. And let's be clear that there are also some ways we are told to carry out step one. In other places, as I said, Galatians 6 verse 1, we are told to do so gently and humbly, 
Paul says we do it in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on ourselves. So we do it gently and humbly. Matthew chapter 7 warns us about going to someone to talk about the speck in their eye when there is a plank in our own eye. And so we must examine our own hearts first before we do this. However, notice here that Jesus' emphasis in verse 15, Jesus' emphasis is on the private nature of this confrontation. We are to have this conversation as privately and as quietly as possible. Look there, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is a private conversation. We're not to air the offense to the world. We're not to talk about it to everyone in the church beforehand. We're, we're not to pass along juicy gossip in the form of a prayer request, right? Did you hear about brother so-and-so? He did this to me. Let's pray for him. No, no. We go to the brother or sister in person and privately tell them their fault. And it's not in to embarrass anyone. It's not to seek revenge. It's not to make an example of anyone. No, this is to be done out of love and out of concern for the brother or sister. And note also, why does Jesus emphasize that this should be done privately? Well, think about it. Because not to do so has the tendency to ruin someone's reputation or to cause serious division in the church. Am I right? And so, one of the reasons this is to be done quietly and privately, at least in the beginning, is because you may not have all the information. You may have misread the situation. You may have bad information, and the last thing you want to do is to spread it throughout the church if it's not true. And so Jesus says, go to the brother, you and them, and tell them their fault. Which, by the way, verse 15, tell them their fault. It's actually a Greek word that means to expose. It means to, to, to bring to light. In fact, it literally means to convict. In reality, what Jesus is saying here is what we are doing for this person is we are flipping on the light switch so that they might better see themselves more clearly. That's what we're doing. We're exposing the darkness. We are helping one another see the sin in our own lives that we are blinded to and otherwise can't see or we need to be warned of before we walk off the cliff. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a most gracious, precious gift from God in one another's lives. And beloved, this is where 95% of all corrective church discipline should be happening. Step number one, daily ongoing relationships with one another in the church. Because when we talk about church discipline, often what we want to do, what we want to do is we want to skip to the last step because it's the most juicy, it's the most flashy, it's the most controversial, when in reality what we see here before we get to that is all the other steps leading up to that. When in reality church discipline should be happening all of the time. 
in this kind of way in step one. And the implication here is that this kind of thing, it cannot happen if a church or going to church is just about coming to a gathering and sitting anonymously in this room. If we are disconnected from one another and don't know one another, this is not how God has designed his church to function. And this is where we see, I think, a healthy small group ministry functioning. Where this sort of thing is regularly happening in each other's lives. But notice step two. Step two, we're going to call it a small group confrontation. And I don't mean small group in the sense of what I'm talking about we're going to begin in the fall and Sunday evenings. I mean a few of you. Look there at verse 16. Actually, look back at verse 15. Jesus says, go and tell your brother his fault. And if he listens, then you gained your brother. He repents. Praise God. And it ends there. However, in verse 16, there are some situations when the person will not listen to you and they won't receive the private correction. They won't repent. They won't return or return from their sin. So what happens then? Well, notice verse 16, step number two, a small group confrontation. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. A small group. Jesus says, if the brother or sister won't listen to you, then take one or two others with you and go to that person again. Now why? Why one or two others with you? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 16, he says, take one or two along with you, that so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, Notice there in verse 16 that Jesus actually quotes here from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where Moses says that every trial must have in Israel two or three witnesses in order to establish the the truthfulness or the validity of a claim. And now Jesus is telling them to take two or three with them. Now, Jesus, he could mean here those who've actually witnessed this particular sin or offense, they have knowledge of it, or he could mean these one or two others are simply acting as witnesses to this second confrontation. Maybe they have a personal relationship with this person. Because if it's just you, then it's a he said, she said kind of thing. And so take two or three others. New Testament scholar R.T. France writes, involving one or two others adds force to the persuasion. The the point here is multiple testimonies are more convincing. They are more persuasive. And so the picture here is one of involving other believers, perhaps two, who are either aware of the situation or they have a personal relationship with the individual. And the point here is, is to broaden the circle 
just enough so that other brothers and sisters then can show and express the same kind of love, the same kind of concern for the person who appears to be in unrepentant sin. And, and either they can say, no, no, that, that's not an issue. You, you don't need to address that. Or we are concerned about you. We love you. And again, this takes care, I think, of most situations. We're probably up to 99% here of all corrected church discipline situations now because this is oftentimes very effective. It is a means God uses to bring about repentance in one another's lives. And the implication there, again, is that there is a small group of people who know you well enough and they know your life well enough and they have enough of a personal relationship with you that they can do this kind of thing. Confront you in love. Which leads to the third step. Step number three we're going to call the church's admonition. The church's admonition, verse 17 While steps one and two may take care of 99% of all church discipline cases, brothers and sisters, there is still this 1% that must be dealt with. And it is serious. It must be addressed. God will not allow unrepentant sin in his church. As one theologian wrote, a church without discipline hardly counts as a church. Another said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Brothers and sisters, this is serious. This is serious. And the reason, the reason I remind you of this is because steps three and four are difficult. Verse 17, notice step three, the church's admonition. Verse 17, if he refuses To listen to them, tell it to the church. So here we see Jesus' use again of the word church, ecclesia. It's the the gathered believers, those who make up the local church. So so now notice the the circle, it it gets even wider. If the person refuses to listen even to the few, then Jesus says, tell the gathered church. And I'm sure this raises a whole host of questions in your mind, doesn't it? Probably raises lots of questions that you may have. How, how is this to be done? What does this actually look like? And I think the words of one commentator would be most wise. When he writes this, he says, application of verse 17 should major on flexibility and sensitivity. The main point, he says, is that the grievance is made public. And it's at this point, maybe saying, what? Which means that at least in the application of verse 17, If steps one and two have been taken and the person is still unrepentant and they won't listen, then the first step would be to at least come to one of the elders. 
the leadership of the church and, and to say, here's someone that I am concerned about. Steps one and steps two have been taken. And then we, as the elders, would work best in how to help that brother or sister. And if that, if that person is still unrepentant after being approached by the elders, then with, with the wisdom and discernment of the elders, we would decide the appropriate time and place to bring that person's sin before the entire congregation. And that's where you may be pumping the brakes. And you may say, whoa. Whoa. That sounds extreme. Is that really necessary? And I would remind you of who it is that is speaking these words. It is the authoritative word of Jesus himself. And you might be asking, okay, why would this step be necessary? Why the entire church being made aware of this? And here's why. Oh, this is beautiful. Because imagine an entire church body now speaking into this individual's life. We love you. We are concerned about you. Repent. Come back to God And you see here God's great love in sending the entire body to this person. Brothers and sisters, see the heart of God here behind this. The love of God in these steps. Which leads to step number four. Step number four, the, we'll call it the sinner's excommunication. Verse 17, notice Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church. And just, just note there the, the hard-heartedness there. He refuses to listen even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 17, if the sinner refuses to listen to the church, again, Jesus, he does not say anything here about the lapse of time that has happened between steps three and four, but if he won't listen even to the church, then that person, Jesus says in verse 17, is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now remember that Matthew's gospel is primarily addressed to believing Jewish Christians. And so to treat a person as a Gentile, a pagan, or a tax collector, a a traitor, as one commentator wrote, both these expressions stand for those outside the people of God. Meaning that the church is to treat him or her as an unbeliever. They are to treat them as lost. They are to treat them as outside the bounds of the Christian community. In other words, to treat that person as though they are no longer a brother or sister in Christ because they are not a Christian and then to exclude them from the fellowship of the believing community. Now, what does that mean? Does does that mean we don't let them come into our church building? Does that mean when you see them walking down the street, you turn the other way? What does Jesus mean? Well, I think the answer is simple. We treat them like we would any lost person. They're not a Christian. 
And so we call them to repent. They believe in the gospel. We evangelize them. We take the keys of the kingdom and we bind the door and we say, as far as we can tell, you're not in. Which note here, I think, assumes the importance and the seriousness of church membership. Church membership is essential to practicing biblical church discipline. Otherwise, what are we removing them from? We are removing them from the membership of the church and the benefits of membership. We are removing them from our fellowship. We are barring them from the Lord's table. Did you know that's what excommunication means? Excommuning them. We are removing our church's stamp of approval that says, we think you are a Christian because there is no such thing, brothers and sisters, as an unrepentant Christian. And we are no longer to consider them a member of the body of Christ. And when a church does this, when they remove them from membership, they, they, they do so, as we said, with the authority of Jesus himself. Verse 18, they bind that person from the kingdom. Verse 19, God himself is in agreement with them. Verse 20, Jesus' presence is there in their midst, acting as the church acts in matters of discipline. And beloved, listen, I admit that these are hard words. And if you're visiting with us today, you're thinking, what in the world is going on? But this is what Jesus says. And this is what we see the New Testament church did. Let me give you an example. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he addresses a very serious sin issue in this particular church. Sexual immorality had infiltrated the church, because one particular individual was committing sexual immorality with his stepmother. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. I'm just going to read it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the authority there of the assembled church. And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, meaning unbelievers, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go outside the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, meaning they call themselves a Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Notice this characterizes their life. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here we see a picture of how church discipline was to happen in the church at Corinth. And and just notice there, notice with me, Four times Paul uses these words and urges this church in a very forceful language, notice, to remove this man from the church. Look there, just notice, verse 2, let him be removed from among you. I think that means membership. Verse 5, deliver this man to Satan. Verse 7, cleanse out the old lump. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Which must lead us then to ask the question, why would we do something like this? I mean, in a culture where love is tolerant, why would a church confront individuals in sin and remove them from the church? So let me just conclude here with just a few reasons why. Very briefly. Why Jesus commands it, why Paul commands it, and why we, brothers and sisters, the Second Baptist Church, must practice biblical church discipline. Why should we do this? What's at stake if we don't? Here they are. Reason number one, we do it for the purity of the church. We do it for the purity of the church. The reason we practice biblical church discipline is because, listen, there must be a clear distinction between the church and the world between believer and unbeliever, between light and darkness. And many churches are trying to blur that line as much as they possibly can, either because they see it as a way to make the church look more attractive, or they're not practicing biblical church discipline, and therefore sin is rampant in the church, and they don't look any different than the world. And so we do it for the purity of the church. And this is the responsibility of the entire church. Whether your brother sins against you or you take it to the church, personally and corporately, it would sort of be like going to the oncologist and having all the tests, all the scans, and all the biopsies, and then to say, It's just a few cancer cells. It's not a big deal. It's deadly. It'll spread. And church discipline is not only good for the individual, it is good for the rest of the church to see the dangers of sin and to warn the church of the seriousness of sin and the need for purity in the church and the need for purity in our own individual lives. And so one of the reasons we do it is for the purity of the church. Second reason, though, it is for the salvation of the individual. 
The reason we are to practice biblical church discipline is because, brothers and sisters, it is an instrument of leading someone to repentance. It's a means of restoring someone back to God. And as I said, that's the aim here. That's the goal. It's never, we're done with you. It's repent, be restored, come back into fellowship with God and his people. In fact, just notice two phrases where we see that in both texts. If you've still got your place there, I can just read it. In Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. New American Standard says, You have won him. You've gained him. You've, you've won him. You, literally, you've, you've won something back that was lost. You have rescued your brother or sister from spiritual ruin. Could there be anything more loving that you could do for somebody? And it becomes even more apparent in Paul's words, if you've got your place there in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 5. Notice where he says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that doesn't sound very loving at first, does it? But the point is clear. The church is to hand this person over to Satan. They are to treat them as an unbeliever. They are to relinquish them to the world, which is Satan's domain, in hopes that they will repent. So that their soul may be saved on the day of judgment. This is about their eternal salvation. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Which means when we see someone in, our, in sin, in our church, living in habitual, unrepentant sin, not, not just battling sin like we all do, no, deliberately refusing to repent of sin, and we've gone through the four steps, and they refuse to repent, we are to remove them from church membership in hopes that they will see the serious nature of their sin. They will repent, and they will come back to Christ. That's always the hope. And that would be the fifth step. We restore them back. In fact, Paul mentions an example of this in 2 Corinthians 2, where he tells them in his second letter, the same church, to restore someone who is under church discipline and apparently has repented. And in fact, in fact, most scholars think that the person he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 2 is the same one that they practiced church discipline on back in 1 Corinthians 5. Isn't that the message of the gospel? For anyone who will repent of their sin, for anyone who will turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ, the Passover lamb who has been slain, there is forgiveness, there is restoration, there is salvation, there is grace. That's the gospel. Unbeliever, if you're in the room this morning, you're not a Christian, repent of your sin and come to Christ and find forgiveness no matter what you've done. And the last reason is this, and perhaps the most important of all, we do it for the reputation of Jesus. 
The reason we practice biblical church discipline is because, listen, if we don't, if we don't, the glory and the reputation of Jesus is at stake. In fact, notice Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. The implication here is that by allowing sin into the church, this church was sending a message to the world. They were sending a message to the world of what they believed about the message of the gospel, of what they believed about the holiness of God, of what they believed about their own sinfulness, about what they believed about salvation, ultimately what they believed about Jesus himself. And brothers and sisters, we as the church, we are called to represent Jesus to the world, to be a light to the nations, to be the salt of the earth, so that those who who see our good deeds, they would glorify God. And and as we live like this, in the holiness with which we live, as the people of God set apart, that it would make Jesus look attractive, it would make him look more glorious, because he's the one who has ransomed and redeemed us and restored us back to God. So we do it for the glory of Jesus. So will we do this? Will we live like this? Will we do this for one another? For the glory of the one who has saved us, who has made us holy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what marvelous grace we have received. If you should number transgressions, oh Lord, who could stand? And yet you have removed them as far as the east is from the west through the blood of the cross. And that is our hope this morning. We all recognize, I think, probably in light of this text text areas of our lives where we, we are prone to sin, we are prone to wonder, maybe even unrepentant sin. Oh Lord, may we bow before you in submission May we lay those at your feet. May we turn to the forgiveness and grace and mercy that's found in the cross. And then by that, may we celebrate that you are a God who restores sinners back to you. And may we be a church that does so as well. We pray this for the glory of our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand together, please, and sing. His mercy is more. What love could remember No wrongs we have done Omniscient, all-knowing He counts not their sum Thrown into a sea Without bottom or shore Our sins, they are many His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. 
What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What riches of Kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the Lord his mercy is more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. There's mercy at the cross, amen? Mm -hmm. Loving one another by confronting one another is a blessing to the church. It purifies the church, but it gives glory to Christ. That's our objective, right? Well, you've been reminded that um, we have a meal waiting for us here in just a few moments. And so visitors, members alike, you're all welcome. We encourage you all to stay for that. Uh, so we have plenty of food to eat, and we just would like to fellowship with all of you. So uh, if you would stay, and then after that, we're going to have a family meeting. We'll discuss some issues, and then we're going to have a question and answer time specifically regarding our small group's ministry. So if you're a member of this church, we encourage you to stay for that part of it as well. So let me leave you with these words of Paul, the apostle, as he concluded his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a good afternoon.